delighted to welcome David Klein into the virtual Squashing the Market studio. David is truly the perfect guest for this podcast as we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and investing. A true leader in the fintech community, David co-founded and is CEO of student lender Common Bond, one of the leading fintech companies in the U.S. The company sits in the middle of one of the biggest and most daunting financial problems confronting our nation, 1.5 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, of student debt. David started Common Bond in 2012, shortly after earning his MBA at Wharton. He did stints at American Express and global consulting company McKinsey. He is a member of the Forbes Finance Council and a trustee of Bronx Charter School for the Arts and a graduate of Brandeis University. Welcome to the Squashing the Market studio, David. Thanks, Phil. Good to be here. So let's discuss your journey into student lending and into finance. How did Common Bond happen? How did you make it happen? Sure. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I always knew I wanted to start my own company, uh, but I also wanted to have a good amount of experience in corporate America. And so I put myself in corporate America for uh, for a number of years, ended up working at places like McKinsey, the management consulting firm, and American Express. After spending about eight or nine years in that environment, I thought, okay, now uh, I feel ready. I feel prepared uh, to go start my own thing. And I had a decision to make. Did I want to go to business school and use that as an opportunity to incubate and accelerate an idea and actually launch a company from business school? Or did I simply want to quit my job and start a company cold. And I ultimately was fortunate to, to get into to business school and ultimately decided to, to go that former path, uh, go to business school, use that as the opportunity to incubate and accelerate an idea. Did you have an idea going into business school or it was just a, uh, or a more vague idea? I want to start something. No. It, yeah. It was more, it was much broader than, than specific. I just knew I wanted to start something. And coincidentally, or ironically, it was precisely because I went back to business school and I had to pay my way 100% with student loans that I stumbled upon the thing that I would then dedicate myself to. Uh, and that was a broken student loan market. You know, we've gone on to help people refinance their loans or finance their education on a primary basis. More than $4 billion in loans to date by our calculations uh, we've saved people uh, about a billion dollars in interest that they otherwise would have paid over time, but no longer will pay because they've worked with us. But back to back to the, the origin story, as you were asking, yeah, uh, it was because I went to business school, because I had to pay my way with with student loans that I kind of stumbled upon this as the area that I would that I would focus on. And what was it about student lending that gave you the idea back then? Well, you know. I needed to pay my way 100% with student loans. And I thought it was going to be relatively easy, relatively straightforward. But what I discovered was the opposite of that. <laughs> uh, I thought I could go online. I could see what my options were. I could see what my rates were. It would be a simple process, a transparent process. And if I ever had a question, it would be clear who I needed to call. And when I did call, the answers were pretty straightforward. None of that was my experience. The rates were unnecessarily high. The process was overly complex and opaque. The customer service was pretty poor. And I thought, my goodness, this is really broken. 
And it was that, it was that experience that, that made me realize it doesn't, well, it was that experience that geared me in this direction. And then it was my experience in finance and my entrepreneurial ambition that told me, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. And so it was very personal to me from the very beginning. And as we continued building out, we started thinking about, okay, how do you make this a platform that scales uh, for millions of people across the country? And that's really how, how the company started. And so you have this great idea. You're passionate about it and very mission-driven about it because it means something to you and to your fellow students at the time. What are those next steps you take? Do you, how, do you, how do you raise the money to put yourself into business? Did you need to raise money? And how do you fund all those loans that you want to make? So one of the benefits of starting a company from business school is that you get to start it from business school. What I mean by that is you get to dedicate 150% of your time and energy to it. You get to be around some of the world's greatest professors on things like finance and marketing and operations management. You get to be around a group of really capable people who are prime candidates to be your co-founder. I mean, it really is a fertile place to, to start a company. And so looking back, I'm quite fortunate that, you know, was able to, to start a company from, from business school uh, and I ended up going to, to Wharton. Uh, that's where I, you know, first quarter wrote the business plan for this in a class, ended up meeting my two co-founders, Mike and Jessup, and asked them to, to come along for the ride, ended up, you know, applying for entrepreneurial legal clinics to get the legal docs in order. In this particular case, I was around, you know, 1700 friends who were also the target demographic or target customer for the thing that I wanted to go build. So fertile ground for customer research uh, and initial kind of pilot participants. We ended up launching the company from Wharton in a pilot program in late 2012. That pilot went well. And then we used the results from that pilot to go raise a lot of capital, both to fund the loans as well as to fund the business and launch nationally. And those are two different types of investors, people who invest in loans, whether it's an individual or a institutional investor, is a different investor than the one that invests in venture equity situations. You had to scour, I'm sure, a lot of people to raise the kind of money that you wanted to raise. How did that go? And how did you navigate through that process? You're absolutely right. Um, two different kinds of capital, two different kinds of investors, complex to navigate. We ended up speaking to, I think, 200 investors before we got our first yes. Uh, so there was a lot of elbow grease and sweat equity in the early days. You know, frankly, it would have been really easy to give up. And I think that's typical for a lot of, I think that's a typical experience for a lot of entrepreneurs in the early days. There's so much resistance that you face. There's so many no's, there's so much rejection. It's really easy to, to just stop. But what I found was that if the, if the passion is deep enough, you keep pushing through. And by the way, not blindly, it was very helpful to get those 200 no's, not just, not just because they were no's, but because there was really good, helpful feedback along the way. We always asked why the no? We didn't ask that way, but that's what we were getting at. And we got some phenomenal feedback and we ended up incorporating a lot of that into what ultimately became the model. I've said before, you know, it's incumbent upon us to use the resistance as fuel uh, to get us closer to yes, closer to success as opposed to, to discouraging or, or demotivating. 
So that that certainly was was our experience in the early days. With respect to you know capital for the loans versus capital for the business, you're right. They're two very different capital sources. Interestingly, in the early days, a lot of the people we were calling was to fund the loans. It was the capital to fund the loans. And interestingly, a, a number of folks, not everyone, but a number of folks said, hey, I'm not interested in that piece, but I am interested in potentially investing in the equity side of the business. And we said, well, we, we appreciate that. We'll, we'll keep you on our list, you know, but in order to breathe life into this business, we really are first looking for uh, lending capital uh, because that's kind of the lifeblood of this thing that we're doing. And if that comes along, then the equity follows suit. And so that's effectively, that's effectively what, what we did. We ended up uh, starting a fund to begin with. Once we launched the pilot and we showed that A, there was customer demand, B, we were able to get the capital we needed to fund the loans, and C, we were able to disperse to the last penny within four weeks to show operational acumen. We were on the path to go raise a significant, significantly more capital uh, than we had for the pilot, which enabled us to launch, and, and that's, that's what we did. What was different about your product than the other student lending options out there? How did you get people to borrow money from common bond as opposed to going to their bank or the government or wherever else they might've been going. Yeah. So from a consumer's perspective, they really didn't have too many options. I mean, at the time they, they could have gone to the federal government or private banks at the time, the federal government was charging something like 8% APR all in particularly for grad school students. And then for undergrad students who had tapped out their subsidized loans, a high rate as well. And then a lot of the private banks were charging, you know, something not too dissimilar from that. And so we came in and we said, in the case of the federal government, they're charging one rate to everybody, regardless of past credit, future prospects, which is highly inefficient. And then large banks just have a really large cost basis with branches and a whole host of other things, as well as frankly, a high profit margin hurdle that they needed to get through, which made their rates high. We didn't have those same issues. You know, relative to the federal government, we did underwrite based on past credit future prospects. Relative to banks, we didn't have to pay 200 basis points or more for a, a chain of branches across the country. We we're fully digital. We were able to prove an ability to market at a much lower cost than traditional banks. And so those are the two things that, that enabled us to come into the market and frankly, pass on a lot of that savings to the consumer in addition to making the experience fully digital, simple, straightforward, fast. And, and that's what I think brought a lot of people to us, you know, in the early days all the way to, to today. How has that funding base now changed over time? At the beginning, you were doing probably in the single digit millions or even thousands of dollars of loans. And today, as you said, you've crossed $4 billion of loans. You obviously need larger pools of capital, larger sources of capital to fund all of this activity. How does that happen? How did that happen with you? And who, who are the investors today as compared to when you started? Yeah, it's a good question. And in retrospect, actually, a lot of fun to have evolved from where we were in the early days to where we are today. So in the early days, I told you, you know, a pilot, a small fund uh, that uh, we were the GP of uh, that had, you know, we raised from LPs. And now, you know, shoot to cut to today and what you have is an entire funding system full of warehouse lines and then securitization as well as whole loan sale program for what i like to call the capital exit part of our system uh, and it's this really nice virtuous machine uh, or cycle 
that allows us to draw down on more than half a billion in warehouse capacity across multiple banks, Goldman Sachs, Barclays, et cetera. Uh, and then upon securitization or whole loan sale, you know, we've done billions of each by now. Uh, so on securitization, we've done over 10. We're a AAA issuer. Uh, we have a really solid book of investors uh, every deal. Our deals tend to be anywhere from 2 to 5x oversubscribed. And on the loan sell side, we have a number of different funder profiles, big banks, small banks, asset managers, credit funds, especially finance firms, uh, community banks, uh, who are buying our loans, the insurance companies buying our loans on an ongoing basis to complement the, the securitization side of the business. So basically, as a business model, you're really not keeping much on your balance sheet, unlike a bank, which might hold on to things. They, they often sell and securitize as well. But, but you're basically an originator of the asset and then you're selling it off. So your balance sheet isn't encumbered by lots and lots of loans. Is that fair to say? That's correct. We tend to think about our balance sheet as a way station uh, that once we reach critical mass of inventory, we then sell that inventory to uh, folks who want that inventory, investors. Uh, and we sell it either in the form of a securitization or in the form of a pool of loans. David, what you, you mentioned mission before and the personal mission that you felt in starting the company. One of the things, if, you, if anyone who follows you knows that Common Bond, I don't want to like be too sappy, but it's kind of a company with a heart and is involved in some charitable and not-for-profit causes related to education. And it's really seems to be part of the, from the outside looking in, very much part of the culture of your company and what you're doing. Explain how that has evolved as well. And, and why is that a part of your company? Sure. So we have something that we call our social promise. And our social promise leverages the one-for-one -one social mission pioneered by Tom Shoes, made famous by Warby Parker, whereby a consumer purchases a product on your platform. You as a company commit to donating that product to those in need. And so with Tom Shoes, and Warby, um, it's pretty straightforward proposition. They're in durable goods. For us, we don't have a durable good, uh, but we do have a good. It's a credence good. It's education. It's a degree. And so we thought, okay, well, wouldn't it be great if we could use the degree as the dimension on which we key off this one-for-one -one model? So for every degree, you know, as we said, as we, as we start out here, for every degree fully funded on our platform, we common bond fund the education of a student. If I take a step back, the reason we have a one-for-one -one mission to begin with is, frankly, because I just personally believe before starting in the company that, and as I said before, businesses can and should be a positive force for change. You know, we've had that belief from the very beginning, and I didn't think I or we would be authentic unless as we started the company, we too had a very strong social mission that was embedded in the business that allowed us to do more social good, the better we did as a company. Uh, and that to me is the power of the one-for-one -one social mission. Uh, and that's what we built our social promise around. So to date, what that has meant uh, is alongside our partner, Pencils of Promise, which has a chain of 500 plus schools globally, uh, we've been able to donate approximately $2 million, which has funded tens of thousands, the education of tens of thousands of students abroad. Impossible to do a podcast today without talking about the pandemic. What has it meant 
for Common Bond and for you running Common Bond. How, is, how has this impacted your company and your ability to manage? It's a great question. And no doubt, um, I feel a lot of us are going to look back on this moment with a lot of gratitude. And the reason I say that is not because it, it isn't difficult. It's, it's exceedingly difficult personally, professionally for everybody, no matter what company. And as human beings, we don't like feeling disoriented. And there've been a lot of things thrown at us that prevent us from reverting to normal. And that's just a very disorienting, confusing, difficult place to be. So I just, I just want to start with that context. So that that's number one. I think it's important to acknowledge that. You know, number two, it's important, I think, to understand that as a company and as a leader of the company, you have a special place in everybody's life. It's not the full scope of everybody's life, but it's certainly a sphere that people commit to, dedicate a lot of time and attention to. And I think with that comes a responsibility. And I think that responsibility is about being clear with your people about what's going on outside your four walls, being clear with people about what's going on inside your four walls, and being clear with people about how those two things interact with each other over time and being as consistent about it as possible moving forward. Thirdly, I think what this pandemic has done, you know, there are a lot of silver linings. And I think one of the silver linings is that it's made business and leaders more empathetic. And I think that's going to continue post-pandemic in a way that's good, in a way that's good for employees and ultimately will, will serve companies, companies well. I want to get to education for a moment, higher education in America and the student debt. We read about it or I read about it and, you know, it's called a crisis, a student debt crisis. Is it really a crisis or is this something that we just kind of have to deal with year after year in America that education's costly and it's got to get paid for somehow and people are going to have to borrow money to do it? Give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I do think there is a student loan crisis. I think it's more nuanced than that headline, however. It's not a one-size-fits-all crisis, is how I'll say it. There are some folks who are overburdened and over-indebted when it comes to student loans. And I think we need to, and we have a responsibility to make sure that that's not the case. Um, there's another swath of, of folks who, you know, for whom our current system works really well. Education is expensive, yes. There are ways to finance it. And depending on your education, depending on what you do upon graduation, there are a number of folks who pay it down over time. And there's less of an issue and less of a crisis there. And so that's why I say that it's not a one-size-fits-all crisis. The second thing I will say is, and this goes, I think, underreported, I think a lot of energy is put on student loan crisis, but the, the driver is what I would call a college tuition crisis. If you look at how fast college tuition has been increasing, you can explain most of why there's a student loan crisis in this country. If you see that the tuition cost inflation is greater than that, uh, certainly of market inflation, but also healthcare inflation, you start to understand how there's so much student debt in the system. And then when you break down further to understand, okay, where is the debt coming from? To what extent is it creating over-indebtedness for people versus not? That's when you get into the part of the conversation we were talking about before. And there are very specific things that we can do both as public policy, as well as through private markets to help solve that. Some of it's actually being done now, 
but we've got a ways to go. Very quickly then, what's one or two things the government could do right now, do you believe? Sure. So I don't think people have an appreciation for this, and I will give the government some credit here. There are programs in place right now that do address the part of the crisis that's real for a lot of people. However, I don't think it addresses it as well as it could. Here's what I mean. There's a public service loan forgiveness program through the federal government. That is to say that if you've been working for 10 years in a particular industry, you can get your student debt forgiven. That's a phenomenal program, an absolutely phenomenal program. We've only had two years of experience of when people could start taking advantage of that 10 years on. And the acceptance or approval rate has been abysmal. It's been like 1%. In other words, you have all these people who thought all these years they were going to get public service loan forgiveness and only like 1% of the people do. We, we, need to, we need to change that. And there are specific ways that we can. Another example, we have something called income-based repayment. This means that the federal government says, hey, we don't want you to pay more than call it 10 or 15% of your monthly income to pay off your student debt. And by the way, after about 20 years of this, if you're still paying off the loan, we're going to forgive it. What a phenomenal program. What a phenomenal, phenomenal program. And in fact, during the Obama years, he thought the same thing. And he ended up investing a lot of money trying to make people aware of this <laughs> to say, hey, there's a great policy in place. We need more people, you know, there are a lot of people who can take advantage of this, right? And so I still think that's a fantastic program. I think that needs to be elevated a bit more. I think more people need to go into it. So th those are two examples of things that already exist that either need to be done better or people need to be more aware about. The final thing I'd say, and it hasn't been done yet, but allow employers to, to play a role here. Uh, allow employers, you know, there's legislation in the House and the Senate right now. It's been there for a few years. It's bipartisan. Over 50% of Congress co-sponsors this bill. It basically says, hey, we're going to allow a company to contribute to their employee student loan in a way that's tax-free to the employer and the employee. And that's going to apply to all kinds of employees. That's going to apply to frontline workers making $15 an hour. That's going to apply to professionals working at corporate headquarters and, and everybody in between. In full disclosure, we've built technology that enables that contribution. We've sold that into a number of companies already. Uh, to the extent the government comes in and makes those contributions tax-free for the employer and the employee, I just know from where, from where I sit, there are a significant number of companies that are chomping at the bit to be able to provide that to their user as a way to attract and retain top talent. Let's talk about fintech in New York City for a moment. One of the things I've noticed over the last decade or so is that New York City has become a hub of financial technology and creativity and entrepreneurship. What's been going on with that? And in, in particular, what impact has COVID and might COVID have on all that activity? No, no doubt, you know, having having come up in the New York City fintech scene over the last seven or eight years, um, it's been remarkable to see the evolution. Since COVID hit, I will say that what, you know, before was a lot of connectivity in person, whether at conferences or on panels or in dinners or other get-togethers, has diminished materially, as you might expect. And it's it's moved virtual, it's moved online. I think it's required a lot more intentionality to keep that connective tissue of FinTech NYC than before. Before things would happen, you would participate and the, the beautiful randomness 
of connection would happen. That happens less. And so I do find that there are a number of us that just need to be a lot more intentional with that, with that connectivity, either in a virtual conference setting or in a, in a one-off direct kind of one-on-one setting. The last question I always ask my podcast guests uh, before we go to the lightning round is to talk a little bit about their own personal journey in investing and how you manage your assets, not in specific, but in a broader sense. How do you think about uh, allocation of assets, financial planning, et cetera? Maybe you could comment on that for a little bit. Sure. And I'm, I'm probably, as I tell my story, it'll probably become clear I'm a statistic in this way. And, and, and here's what I mean. I am a millennial. And so I don't want to speak on, all behalf of, on behalf of all millennials or even all the older millennials. But for me, and to the extent I'm one of many, I think the older millennials, we remember the tech bust of 2000, 2001. And then not eight years later, we had the financial crisis. And, and that was during a period in, in our lives where we were becoming fully fledged adults. We were graduating or had graduated school. We were entering the workforce. We were dabbling in the stock market. And we just thought that's what you did as you, as you graduated college, as you got a job and you had some a little disposable income, you put some of it away, either in savings or stock or, or both. And I think there are a broad swath of us who, after experiencing the tech bust and then, you know, within 10 years, the financial crisis, we probably became very weary of the market and perhaps a lot more conservative than past generations. Uh, Perhaps those high yield savings account looked better than the market itself, even though history told us and data told us that you could do better in the market. I'm going to bring this back to COVID because I think COVID has had a remarkable impact on so many parts of our lives. And this is just yet another. For, for, whatever, for whatever reason, more of us are investing in the market or back in the market. For whatever reason, uh, the, the trauma of 2000 or 2008 <laughs> has, hasn't been fully washed away, but it's not getting in the way of a lot of older millennials' path. To back to market. And not to say that everyone left the market, but, but more robustly being a participant of the market. I also happen to believe that not only in this COVID world have more people moved back into the market or had a larger position in market, I also think the advent of fractional investing has helped significantly. I think it's made investing materially more accessible, uh, not just to older millennials, but younger millennials, even Gen Z. Uh, And I think those two forces came together at pretty much the same time in the scheme of things. You know, fractional share investing really didn't even exist until late 2019, middle of 2020. That's literally how new this technology is from a wide adoption perspective. And that happened to be the period in which COVID hit as well. And people started rethinking about how the world worked and rethinking their own financial picture. I don't know if I answered your question clearly or, or directly, but, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, being an older millennial, I think we, what we've just gone through in the last six to 12 months has been remarkable. I think it's long lasting and I think it's been a real, a real shift. So we're coming to the end. What, what I always do to close out the podcast is what's called a lightning round. I'm just going to give you pairs of words. You haven't seen them and you just have to pick one or the other. No explanation. Needed. So here we go. High credit quality or maximizing loans originated? High credit quality. 
liberal arts or bachelor of science? I knew that would be a tough one. I can't say both, right? I mean, <laughs> you, can, God, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Either or. Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley? Gotta say Silicon Alley. MBA or just go to work after college? That's just like the BABS. It really depends on personal situation. Bitcoin or U.S. dollars? Bitcoin. Entrepreneurship or apprenticeship? Mm, both. Charter school or public school? Charter school. Maximizing profit or maximizing customer satisfaction? Maximize customer satisfaction. David Klein, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really a pleasure. I wish we had more time to talk. See you soon, I hope, in person one of these days. Likewise. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye.